The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why would you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to kill me or stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So, Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So there are clear parallels between this week's text and last week's. Last week, Israel complained to Moses about hunger. Moses, we're so hungry. We wish we'd been a part of the body count back in Egypt. Being struck dead with a full belly beats, starving to death. Way to go, Moses. That passage makes a big point of saying, look, your issues aren't with Moses. Your issues are with God. You're in this foodless wasteland because God led you here. Here again, Israel figures it is, they are going to die. This time not from starvation, but dehydration. The other difference is this time, the sense is uh, that dying is driving them to want to kill. We are going to die. But Moses, you're going to go first. In other words, they're not just hopeless, they're angry. And that makes sense. I mean, this is what anger does. Anger is just the word we use to describe our various physiological responses to a threat. Right? The adrenaline, the tensing of muscles. We are in fight mode. And it's, it's an unpleasant experience. Uh, but it's not hard to see the necessity of having that response. I mean, you, especially when you consider our evolutionary forebears traipsing through the savannah and crossing paths with a lion. If that encounter triggers a physiological response of drowsiness or boredom, you're going to be eliminated from the gene pool pretty quickly. You need adrenaline. You need hyper-focus. You need a fight mode. So in that sense, anger is necessary for survival. Of course, we don't run across too many lions these days. We face other kinds of threats. 
a colleague who takes credit for uh, our work, uh, or the bully who picks on our kids, or the jerk who takes your parking spot. None of whom, should be pointed out, are lions. The problem is that they trigger the same physiological responses, responses that readied us for lions. They put us in fight mode, which is barely, rarely helpful in these situations. But knowing that it's not particularly helpful in those situations does not necessarily mean fight mode goes away. It sticks around. It's sort of like, I mean, imagine if you spent hours looking your best, putting on your best clothes for some big night out, only to have those plans canceled at the last minute. You know, initially you're disappointed, but I imagine that your next thought is, hey, let's find some other reason to go out. After all, look, I'm looking my best, I'm wearing my best, let's do something. Well, uh, so you go have a nice dinner or something. You're all dressed up. You were all dressed up for that, but you can be all dressed up for this. But fight mode sort of works like that, except it doesn't take you a couple hours to get into fight mode. You can be fully suited up as soon as you think, What's that rustling in the grass behind me, right? But even if it's not a lion, again, you're still in fight mode. So you look for something, anything, to fight. And so we often do. We direct our anger some other way. You know, misdirected anger. And sometimes this is sort of presented as a way of releasing our anger. So I'm mad at this person, but I want to take it out on this pillow or wall or whatever. But it rarely, rarely works that way. It doesn't, it doesn't release anger the way you might release a bird from a cage. Most of the time, misdirected anger releases anger the way you might release a virus from a lab, right? It doesn't go away. It just spreads. It just complicates things further. Misdirected anger often complicates things further. Um, I recall someone saying that part of what made Jackie Robinson uh, such an ideal candidate to be the first African-American to play in the major leagues was that he played well angry. So he was not just, he wasn't immune to the abuse he was receiving. It's just that he could retaliate by upping his game. And that, I think, is a pretty rare quality. For most of us, when anger takes the wheel, our best qualities all just get kicked to the curb, right? Uh, Israel's a good example. I mean, the fact is that there is no question as to how they wound up in the situation they're in. There is a giant, fiery cloud in the sky that they are following. And no one believes that Moses conjured up this bit of pyrotechnics. 
God is present in that thing. You know, where it goes, they follow. If Israel suddenly feels like it's trapped, it's no secret who set them up. But they don't direct their anger at God. And there may be a number of reasons for that. Maybe it's because, well, they've seen what God can do. What happened to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. Yeah, we want to complain about the fact that we're going to be dead soon, but we don't want to become dead because of it. Or maybe, maybe what Israel is figuring here is if they threaten to kill Moses, it'll send God a message. You don't have to actually name God. You just have to, you know, it's like, you see how thirsty we are? We're just about to kill your boy, right? That's the sort of implied message. Addressing God without actually having to address God. Regardless, the text does not say that they make any specific mention of God. They make it about Moses. But Moses calls them out on this. Moses recognizes that this is misdirected anger and says, why? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You know, in other words, Moses isn't captive to their anger-driven logic. By the end of the reading, he will give that place two names, uh, quarreling and testing. And according to Moses, the test was this. Is the Lord with us or not? Is the Lord with us or not? Again, you think, well, you've been following this big, fiery cloud. You would think there's really no question. I mean, they didn't have to pray and fast and look deep within their hearts to discern the presence of God. They just had to look up. There it is. Uh, today's forecast calls for partly God-y skies, right? You know, specifically that part of the sky. There's God. But the question is not whether God is on the premises. It's a question of God, whether God is with us. Is God on our side, not just in our vicinity? Can God be trusted? Now, often I think passages like this will be interpreted as evidence that we are not to question God. And I can see where some might draw that lesson from the text. But it's hard to reconcile that lesson, that conclusion, with what we find, for example, over and over and over again in the book of Psalms and in the prophets. They question God. The difference between these voices, the prophets and the psalmists, and Israel's voice here is that their anger isn't misdirected, right? They are going to take it out. They are not going to take it out on someone else. They are going to bring it to God. Now, I think we can read 
too much into what happens next in, in our passage. But I also think we can, there's a risk of reading too little into it. God instructs Moses to take some elders up uh, to the rock at Horeb. Now, Horeb is actually the mountain uh, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. It means desolate. And God says, I will be standing there in front of you. I'm going to stand there in front of Moses, and then Moses is to take the rod and strike the rock. In other words, in front of the elders, Moses takes a swing that passes through God and strikes against the rock. They wanted to stone Moses, but God's going to take the beating. God takes the hit. And not only does God not retaliate, this blow to the rock brings Israel's salvation. Water from the rock. You tell it like that, it's not hard to see something's happening here that is foreshadowing something that's going to happen later. We are getting a hint of what's to come. Because there is jubilation that breaks out when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Uh, And it's jubilation that occurs right under the watchful eye of the most dominant empire the world has ever seen. The fact that they are are so jubilant under the watchful eye of Rome speaks to just how deeply they had been longing for someone like Jesus, someone to come and deliver them like Moses. And in fact, even though just a few days later, it's no longer a jubilant uh, crowd, it is an angry, bloodthirsty mob calling for Jesus' death, even that also speaks to the longing, right? Uh, That kind of anger only arises from a sense of deep betrayal. It's uh, It's not a response to a lion, but it is the response of a lion. They have become the lion. And they strike a blow. In fact, when Jesus is hanging lifeless on the cross, They pierce his side. And according to John, from the rock of our salvation, blood and water flow from the wound. And in addition to being a sign that he is, in fact, dead, this has been understood to symbolize the two sacraments. uh, The blood of communion, the water of baptism these rituals of our salvation. Now, my point here is not to encourage us to be angry at God. I think one point I would say is, no, it it is we are called to be honest with God. And if angry, then angry. 
And my other, the other point would be to encourage us not to misdirect our angry when really the question is, is the Lord with us or not? Has God committed to us or not? You know, those laments I mentioned, where these, the psalmists ask these angry questions. That's, that's where it starts. It starts with that anger. But with a few notable exceptions, by and large, those same angry questions end very differently. Time and time again, these, these laments, they end with words of praise, with praise of God's faithfulness and steadfast love. And we may wonder, like, what, wait, what, what happened here? Where did that, what caused that turn? It's often quite abrupt. But apparently, the psalmists do not think it's that important to explain to us why they made that turn. It's not important for us to know that. Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe those psalms are an invitation for us to figure that out for ourselves. Follow their example. and Discover what happens when you are honest with God. You know, maybe what you'll find is, you know, a turn happens that can't be put into words, but something has changed. And, there's, and you have to experience that for yourself. Now, this passage presents us a case where anger with uh, Moses is clearly misdirected. It's really anger with God. And so often in our own lives, it's, it doesn't work that cleanly. We may not know when actually whether uh, our anger is somehow directed toward God uh, and misdirected toward something else. I mean, but I don't think it needs to be obvious for the, the lessons of this passage to apply to those situations where we feel angry. Because you know, what often happens is uh, when we direct our anger at someone else, something else, we become like that mob, right? We felt threatened, so we become a threat. You felt like a lion, so I'm going to become lion-like. And when we act out of that, the person who is the object of that, we, be, we are the lion for them. And so it's going to trigger their lion response. And so, oh, unless, uh, sometimes people will respond to it by becoming submissive, which actually, it, when you think about it, is, is kind of a worse response. Because that allows us to think, ah, anger works, right? We got what I, we wanted. Anger can be addictive. Anyway, so you find yourself roaring all the time. Anyway, so even if it's not clear whether you're really angry at God, it really is a good habit to take it to God first and do so trusting somehow God is with you. God is not threatened by you. God is not going to, you are not a lion. You know, at your angriest, your roar is like a, a kitten wanting to nurse. So maybe even just being able to express it will be enough to get over it. Maybe that'll be enough to, to, for it to be done and you'll be able to move past it. But 
It may also be that dealing with it with God does prepare you to deal with it where else you need to deal with it, right? Um, that that, that, that it no long, they no longer feel a threat to you. And that prepares you to do whatever has to come next. Um, you may still need to have a conversation with a colleague, the, the parents of the bully or, or whatever, but you're not gonna do it feeling threatened by them as you know God is with you. You go into that conversation, know that you do not go alone. And when you go into that conversation, knowing that you don't go alone, everything else looks a little different. Problems may still be problems, but they don't roar. They lack claws, they lack fangs. They look more like ornery kittens. Not easy, but manageable. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.